Okay, so we are, uh, we are finishing up on this series of The Greatest Showman. And, uh, and if you've not seen it, I, I have one DVD here. I may have an, uh, a few others if you've not seen the film. And, um, and we've been looking at the songs of The Greatest Showman for the last four weeks and how this film uh, has seemed to have caught the imagination of people all over the world. Because somehow the story and the songs speak to perhaps some of the things that we deeply long for, some of the big giants that we face in our world, in our inner world, about our self-worth. Am I loved? Our significance? Why am I here? Our security? Will everything play out okay? And, uh, and if you've been journeying, we've been looking at these different songs and how they connect with some stories that Jesus told. Um, I love a great movie. Anyone love a really good movie? Yeah, so you can like you can talk back to me, okay? And um, so I do. I love a great movie, and all good movies essentially uh, are like a three-act play. So you've got Act One, what um, what screenwriters call the setup. And so in the setup of the Greatest Showman, we have P.T. Barnum wanting to leave behind his history, his poverty, that sense of being a nobody, and make a name for himself to get married, to have a family, to become popular, to become wealthy, to prove everybody wrong. It's the setup. Act two is what's called the confrontation. It's, it's, the, it's the middle bit of the movie. It's posing the question, will the real hero emerge from the story? And so for him, his endless pursuit of more, trying to prove himself, becomes exhausting for his family, everyone he loves. And as we looked last week, in the end, it all goes horribly wrong. He finds himself in a pit, or in a pub at least. His circus tent is burnt, his marriage is broken, his business is bankrupt, and he is in big trouble. And then the final act of all these great stories is what is called the resolution. That moment, will the hero emerge? Will the hero realize what life is truly about? And for P.T. Barnum in this slightly fictionalized story of his circus of misfits and societal outcasts, he gets to this place where he realizes that life is not about stuff. Not is, life is not about accumulating things and becoming famous. Life is about relationships. It's about family. It's about friendships. It's ultimately life is about love. Love is the greatest power in the universe. And, and so as we reach the tail end of the film, so spoiler warning, uh, we get the, the, the film's theme tune. It starts with this and it ends with this. And so, so if you've not seen it before or uh, you want a reminder, this is the, the song we're going to look at this morning. It's The Greatest Show. Uh, watch this and look at the lyrics.
was für ihn. What will you be doing? Watching my girls grow up. The show must go on. So there you go. Everything you ever want, everything you ever need is right here in front of you. This is where you want to be. What if the words of that song are true? What if everything you ever want and everything you ever need is right in front of you all the time? And it's the place where you really want to be. And what if the greatest show on earth is not actually a show that you get to spectate, but actually to play your part in. And as you play your part in what is perhaps truly the greatest show on earth, you discover what life is truly all about, life in all its fullness. There's a story told about um, a Jewish guy called Akiva many, many, many years ago. And Akiva was uh, traveling back from the market one day, and, uh, and he wasn't kind of noticing what he was doing, and he took a wrong path, and he ended up at a Roman garrison. And, and suddenly, as he realizes where he is, he hears a voice calling out, Who are you? And why are you here? Like he, he's startled and he looks around and he sees this Roman sentry. Again, the guy calls out, Who are you? And why are you here? Akiva goes up to the man and asks him, How much do they pay you to ask that question in this place? And so the sentry guard looks at him and says, Five drachmas a day. And Akiva says, okay, if you would come with me now, and if you would stand outside my house every single morning and ask those two questions, who are you and why are you here? I will pay you. I will double that. I will pay you 10 drachmas a day if you would simply come every morning and ask me those two questions. Because those are the biggest questions in life. Who are you and why are you here? Like if, you, if you asked P.T. Barnum that question, particularly around Act 1, into the beginnings of Act 2, he would say, I am P.T. Barnum, and I am a success. 
And I'm here to prove everybody wrong. I'm here to make a name for myself. I'm here to become famous and a celebrity and to have power and to prove all the naysayers wrong. But if you, if you find him in the middle of Act 2, he's going to have a different answer to that question. He's going to say, I'm B.T. Barnum. I am a failure. Everybody was right about me. I can't succeed. I'm a failure. I'm a nobody. And I guess that's the problem when we build our lives on things. On jobs, on possessions, even on relationships sometimes, or, or money. If, if we build our lives on that, if our foundation of self-worth, significance, and security is on those things, whenever those things take a hit, we're going to take a hit. Our self-worth, significance, and security will take a hit. Is there a bigger story? A better story? And this ancient text dares to say there is. There is a better story to live your life by. There is a bigger story. There is a real story of what's going on in the world. And in, and in this story, it says that, that you and I are not here by some cosmic accident. That actually we were lovingly and intentionally created by a God who deeply cares about us, who loves us, who longs for relationship with us. We were created to know him, to live with him both now and all eternity, and to join him in what he's doing in the world, which is to see heaven break out across the earth, to see the goodness and the grace and the power and the miraculous, the impossible breaking out into human history right now, the walls coming down is what he invites us to do, that we would be not idle spectators, but active participants in this amazing story of God, this great adventure. So I want to look at a story that kind of reminds us of that. And it's in a, a book in the Bible called Luke. It's in the New Testament. The New Testament has Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, uh, and they're all biographies of Jesus' life. So if you have a Bible, open it up, turn it on. If you don't have one, this is going to be on the screens. And this is uh, Luke chapter 10. And we're going to get to this story that we all think we know really well, the story of the Good Samaritan. But the setup of the story happens in verses 25 to 29. So this is what it says, verse 25. One occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 26, Jesus says, what's written in the law? The man replied, how, um, but Jesus replied, um, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But the man wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now, just to clear some things up here already, when the guy asks this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He is not asking the question, how do I go to heaven when, he, when I die? That's not what he means. Like Jewish thinking is much bigger than this. So when he's asking Jesus this question, he's saying, Jesus, how do I find the breathtakingly eternal, awesome life of God that is not just available to me after death, but is available to, be, to me right here, right now? How do I get that life now? And Jesus often would answer a question with a question. So he says, well, what do you think? Like, what have you read in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament law? And this guy's a wise guy. He actually gives a brilliant answer. 
that Jesus says, well done, that's right. Because essentially he says, there are three things that you do. And the second two flow from the first. If you want to have the life that you were created to live, you need to love God completely, love yourself correctly, love other people compassionately. That's the essence. That's a whole message in its own right. But that's what the man says. And Jesus says, that's a great answer. And so then the man says, he asks this question. Now notice the consistency between all of these things is one word. What's the consistent word? Love. Love, right. It's love. And so then the guy asks, okay, so who is my neighbor? And really what he's asking, Jesus, is this. What are the limits of this love? Because you can't possibly expect me to love everybody. So just like, let's create some boundaries here. Because like there are some people, Jesus, in my life who drive me nuts. And you cannot possibly expect me to love those. Like, so my neighbor clearly means the people that I get on with, right? And so then Jesus tells the Good Samaritan story. Now, again, we think we know this story really well. Like the, the word Samaritan is infused into our culture today. We have the Samaritans who are available on the phone to us. It's rooted in this story. That's where this comes from, from this very, very story. Those who are available to help people. Like, you know, if, if you are in the I Love Hitchin or maybe your equivalent in, uh, in your town Facebook group, often you'll see people say, thank you to the Good Samaritan. I fell over and they picked me up. And we're so familiar with these words, but actually we're going to look at this story a bit deeper because maybe we've read the whole story wrong. Maybe we've read it wrong. So Jesus begins, verse 30. Jesus replies, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, just pause there. Now, the road to Jerusalem and Jericho is about 17 miles, and it was known to be a very treacherous road. Like, no one in their right mind would walk on the Jericho road by themselves. This is a really, really bad idea. In the culture, like, don't do it. You might go on a horse. It's like, in 2010, I went to Cape Town, South Africa, for the first time. And the people there, I was at a conference with about 4,000 leaders from across the world. And they said to us, whatever you do, do not travel at night by yourself within Cape Town. It's dangerous. And on one particular evening, it was about half six, seven o'clock in the evening. And, uh, and it was still light. And I was aware that my, the hotel that I was at was literally about a mile walking along a pavement by a dual carriageway to the conference venue. So I thought, it's like still daylight. It must be all right. So I thought I'd be fine. So I start to walk down to the conference venue. And I hadn't got too far when I realized I was very wrong. Because as I'm going along, on the other side of this dual carriageway, three guys, they suddenly spot me. And as they spot me, they turn and they start to run across the dual carriageway towards me. Now, I'm aware these guys do not look like they want my autograph. They're, they're not here for a hug and a high five. They're not here to say, hey, where are you from? I think they're like, that guy's carrying a laptop bag. So I realize I'm in big trouble in this moment. And, and in that moment, I look around me and, and thankfully, maybe the kindness of God, a, a taxi literally is driving past. I hail it, get in. And as I get in, those guys turn about and they head off. People are right. Be careful walking around Cape Town at night. Be careful walking on the Jericho Road, you are likely to get beaten up. This guy is half dead. But in his half-deadness, in the distance, he spots there are some people coming. He thinks, okay, this is going to be all right. Let's look what happens next. Verse 31 to 32. A priest happened to be going down the road. When he saw the man, he passed by the other side. 
So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Like, what's going on here? Like, why would the priest, the religious man, do that? Surely religious people should reach out. And let me say, as we say many times in this church, in this church, we have no interest in religion. I know some of you are here and, uh, you know, you may say, I'm, I'm, I'm not a religious person. You're in great company. Jesus Christ did not come to establish a religion. He came to establish a life-giving relationship with God that would change everything. Is there anyone in the house who's got a relationship with Jesus? So it's not interested in religion. So, so the, here's the problem of the priest. The priest probably lives in Jericho. And, uh, and he's been doing a stint in Jerusalem, in the, in the temple, and so he's on his way back. And he knows, he knows that if he gets close to this guy, he knows the law says he will become unclean. And if he becomes unclean, he's going to have to go back to Jerusalem. He's going to have to go through a bunch of purity rituals. He's going to declare himself unclean. He's going to have to stand by the eastern gate in Jerusalem for a week until all of those purification rituals are done and everyone's going to know he's unclean. He's going to have to spend some money and get a cow and have it sacrificed. Like This is going to be very costly, very sacrificial. And for him, he's thinking, like, I don't have time to love. Like I've got plans, I've got people to see, I've got places to go, and I've got a reputation to keep. And so he moves on. He moves on. So easy to do, isn't it? So easy when, when we are all living our lives at 100 miles an hour, and, and we see someone in need or a situation that actually we do have the capacity and the capability to do something about, but we have forgotten to embrace interruption. And disruption. We have our agendas, we have to keep to them. And so he walks by and he takes a very wide berth to make sure that he can't be accused of being unclean. Then a Levite, a Levite is a lower ranking priest. He does exactly the same thing. Why? Why would he do the same thing? Because if the Levite looks at the, at the priest and thinks, well, if like he walked by, then I'm going to walk by. I'm going to follow his example. And that's the power of part of the power of this story is the power of our example. Like if, if you walk by, then everybody walks by. It reminds me, uh, a few years back, I was, I was in Letchworth, and I was stuck in a, in a traffic queue around uh, Letchworth Swimming Pool on the mini roundabout there. And I was trying to figure out, like, what's going on? What's happening? And I, I kind of looked around, and I realized that there was an old guy uh, by a bike and a younger guy, and they were facing off. Uh, clearly, some kind of road rage incident kind of going on. And... Uh, and it looked like it was about to go get out of hand. Now, like you, I know most of you, many of you don't know me, but, but if you're part of my church, you know, I'm not that kind of guy. I mean, I, I am wearing a Superman costume underneath this, but, uh, but very rarely do I get it out. But, uh, but, but I just thought, no, this is, this is not good. And so I got out of my car and I walked past about five cars and I got between these guys and I said to the old guy, hey, listen, my friend, um, just uh, seriously, get on your bike and just kind of be on your way. Like, come on, calm down. And, to the, and then I turned to the other guy and then I realized, actually, when I got close to him, he was big. <laughs> he, he had muscles in places. I don't even have places. <laughs> like, literally, I was about to say something and then I looked at him and I nearly went, well done. <laughs> Good for you. That's, that's great. Be on your way. 
Anyway, I didn't. I paused, I gasped, and I, and I just said, hey, mate, come on. Like, you know, just come and get in your car. Like, you know, let's, off you go. And anyway, they, they went on the way. And then I started to walk back. And as I started to walk back, the guy directing the par- uh, in the car behind, he gets out of the car. And then he says to me, I was just about to come out and help you. <laughs> yeah, great. Fat lot of good that was. But isn't that our wiring? Like, who's going to go first? Who's going to go first? And this is where the story takes a big shock about who is going to go first. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went out to him, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and then he put the man on his donkey, brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you might have. Now, I cannot, friends, underestimate how shocking this would be for the listeners because I cannot overemphasize how much the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. They really did. That hate goes back a thousand years when the nation of Israel was split into a southern kingdom which became Judah and, and the northern kingdom that eventually became Samaria. These people despised each other. They hated each other with a passion. And so when, when Jesus says, and then a Samaritan walked by, the listeners are immediately thinking, the Samaritan is going to finish him off. That's what he'll do. He'll just go in and... Give him a good kicking because that's what Samaritans do because they are scum. But that's not what happens here. The one who is to, supposed to despise actually takes a massive risk. And he stops and he tends to wounds and, and he puts the guy on his horse and he looks after him. And then he does something which is either utterly stupid or incredibly brave. He takes the man to Jericho. Now, Jericho is an orthodox Jewish enclave, a Samaritan walking in to a Jewish province. Like, can you imagine? The guy knows as he takes this guy into this uh, Jewish settlement, he knows that the default answer that these people will think is that he has nearly killed this man. And so by taking him into Jericho, he knows he's risking his own life. That people might think that he has done this. This extraordinary sacrifice. This commitment to be interrupted and, and, and disrupted. This commitment to do whatever it takes to make a difference in the world. And he steps in. And, and then, then he takes it to another level. Then he basically opens up a free tab. And he says, whatever it costs, I'll come back. Like if this guy like decided to order Dom Perignon champagne for a week, like he might be in trouble. If he came back and he couldn't afford the bill, then he'd become a slave. This is, again, extraordinary love, extraordinary sacrifice, extraordinary risk. This story of the Good Samaritan is not a nice message from Jesus that says, it's nice to do a good turn for people now and again. 
to just be nice to nice people. No, this is Jesus saying, the, the love that changes the world is a love that is sacrificial, that is interruptible, that is disruptive, that will pay any price, that will take any risk to see someone else thrive in life. Even your enemy, even the person who hates you. Because if everyone lived like this, this world would be a different place. And ultimately, when, when Jesus is inviting this thinking, of course, ultimately, friends, he's talking about himself. The Good Samaritan story is ultimately Jesus talking about himself. Jerusalem is a picture of heaven. Jericho is a picture of earth. It's the lowest city in the whole of the world. Literally, it's a thousand feet below sea level. And it was known to be a a place of, of sinfulness and debauchery and messed up and broken people. Earth, broken, heaven, whole. And every single one of us, just like the the guy on the road, just like the expert in the law, we've all been broken on the road. All of us have been broken and beaten up by life circumstances. Sometimes that's because of things that we've done. Like we've said, done, thought things, and we've hurt ourselves. We've caused ourselves, we've punched our own face. And sometimes we've been beaten up by the decisions of other people. Like I don't think there's a single person in this room who has not been hurt, beaten up, suffered, struggled, somehow, some way on life's road. And the good Samaritan on this story is Jesus. Because Jesus leaves heaven and he breaks into human history and he comes to the people who don't love him, who don't believe in him, who perhaps despise him, who uses his name just as a swear word, who want nothing to do with him. He comes to them to rescue them. And he pays whatever price. Like I know this song, Reckless Love, that we sing. Some of us, and I understand it, have, a, have an issue. Like God's love is, is, is not reckless. Well, God isn't reckless. But some of the things that God does, you've got to think, like, this is crazy. That, that Jesus would be willing to come and enter a dark world and show us how to live and then take on the cross all the darkness and death and suffering and selfishness, all of that brokenness on the cross himself, paying the very highest price, praying, paying the bill that no one in this room can pay, suffering for all of the brokenness and sinfulness of the world, but then rising again three days later to prove that he was God, to prove that that stuff's under his feet, and to prove that we can join him in seeing more of heaven break out in the world. This story ultimately is about him. It's about Jesus doing that for us, coming to us in our brokenness to rescue us on life's broken road. How many people here have seen the film Dunkirk, the Christopher Nolan film? Anyone seen Dunkirk? Good film. And of course, it tells the story of what happened in the, in the early part of the Second World War in the 1940s, where, where hundreds of thousands of British troops are, are basically trapped on the Dunkirk beaches. And this unbelievable, almost miraculous operation of of convoys of boats that come across the channel and eventually 338,227 British troops are saved. It's It's an incredible story. The week after all of this happened, Winston Churchill was in Parliament and he famously said this, We must be very careful not to assign this deliverance the attributes of victory. Wars are not won by evacuations. 
And what Winston Churchill was saying was this. This is great that we've all been rescued, but we've been rescued for a purpose. We've been rescued for a reason. We are not saved by our good works. That's the whole point of the, of the Levite and the priest in this story. That They represent the law. It's like Jesus is saying, if you're trying to save yourself by just being a good person, by trying to follow uh, the good things and about avoiding the bad things, Jesus is saying, the Levite, the priest, trying to be good will not save you. Like, How's that been going for you so far? Like, uh, uh, like we, we're the cleverest, most technically advanced people in the whole of human history. And like our world is going to hell in a handcart. Things are messed up. We cannot fix this ourselves. And so Jesus rescues us. But, but we're not rescued by our good works, but we are rescued for good works. We're rescued to play our part in this greatest show on earth. And the greatest show on earth is that Jesus Christ because of the love of God for us, has come to rescue us, that we could be forgiven and restored into relationship with God, that we could know him as always we should have known him, that we can live with him both now and all eternity, like always we were created to live with him, and that we can join in with what he's doing right here, right now on earth, seeing heaven break out on the earth. The great stuff of God breaking out that we would love God completely, that he would be in the center of our lives, and that when he is in the center of our lives, he gives us the power, the ability, the strength. He changes us so that we can then love others compassionately and love ourselves correctly. He alone can do it. Like I I don't know many people, maybe you can, who are able to love their enemies, forgive their enemies, reach out and do an act of kindness to the boss who drives them absolutely nuts. But with Jesus, you can. That's the point of the Good Samaritan story. This radical, extraordinary, risk-taking, disrupted, interruptible kind of sacrificial love that if everyone on planet earth lived this way, the world would be a different place. People would probably call it heaven. Heaven. This is what we're all invited to do. And, and, if, and, and I would dare to say, if we don't play our part in this story, then then the song is right. Buried in your bones, the song says, there's an ache that you can't ignore. There's something in us that's longing for this. And we're looking for life and love in all the wrong places. Like It's good to have lots of money. It's good to have a nice car. Great to have relationships. Great to have kids. All of those things are wonderful. We celebrate them. But actually, true life is only found in the one who is the life giver. And so, so if we're answering these big questions, who are you and why are you here? Our self-worth, according to this great story, is your self-worth is that you are created and loved by God. And nothing that you do can make him love you less or more. He loves you. Your security is in the promise that whatever happens to you on this earth, good, bad, or ugly, God promises to always be with you, always carry you, give you hope and peace and strength. And even you don't need to worry about death because that's not the end of the story. He'll be with you forever and ever. And your significance is found in the fact that the king of all creation, the king of kings and lord of lords, knows you by name. He knows the very hairs on your head. He knows your very fingerprints and DNA. And he made you. And when he made you, he was showing off. And and, and he created things that only you could do. And that if you would join him in that, if you would join him in living a life of love and light and life, 
then you will find life and all those around you will find life. This is the greatest show of all. Not the one that you sit back and watch, but that you throw yourselves into and find out like Jesus promised that you would have life and life in all its fullness. The greatest show of all.